Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I'm Drew. How's it going? Hey, hey everyone. Uh, this week, we're just, we decided that we are going to do a book review of, you know, just something that has been in both of our libraries, uh, a piece of work that is from a writer that we tend to follow quite a bit. Uh, we've mentioned him on the podcast uh, a lot because we're just huge fans of him. And uh, the work that we're doing, that we're going to be reviewing, is The Girl in the Bay by G.M. DeMatteis and Corin Howell. Um, are there any other uh, bits of detail that you'd like to include about the creative staff behind it, Drew? I'll just run down the... Uh specifics here and all the minutia for completion sake. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up everybody? I'm Drew. How's it going? Hey, everyone. Uh, this week, we're just, we decided that we are going to do a book review of, you know, just something that has been in both of our libraries, uh, a piece of work that is from a writer that we tend to follow quite a bit. Uh, we've mentioned him on the podcast uh, a lot because we're just huge fans of him. And uh, the work that we're doing that we're going to be reviewing is The Girl in the Bay by G.M. DeMatteis and Corin Howell. Um, are there any other uh, bits of detail that you'd like to include about the creative staff behind it, Drew? I'll just run down the uh, specifics here and all the minutia for completion's sake. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as you said, G.M. DeMatteis is the writer. Corin Howell is the artist. We have James Devlin as colorist, Clem Robbins as letterer, Karen Berger as editor, Richard Bruning, logo and book designer, Rachel Boyaditz, I might have mispronounced that, is assistant editor, Adam Pruitt is digital art technician. And this comic was published by Berger Books, which is a Dark Horse Comics imprint published in... 2019 so a fairly recent comic and jmdm is one of the writers that like you said we both really enjoy his work and have followed him throughout numerous projects he's had a pretty long career you have any thoughts on any of his works or any of the other creators involved maybe we should see if there's anything we have to say about the other people because I feel like we probably have more to say about JMD Mateus. Yeah. But I'm oh. not too familiar with Corin Howell. This is the first time I've read any of her work. I looked her up just to see her credits. And I did find that she drew some DC comics a while ago, a Batmite miniseries. She's also drawn some Transformers comics and I think some Ghostbusters comics. Basically, just random licensed properties that I had never really bothered reading. 
So uh, I think she's done more stuff since, but a lot of it is stuff that I'm just totally ignorant of. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that my experience is the same as yours. Uh, I've never heard of her, um, and that's just mostly by the virtue of her working on things that I really haven't had a chance to expose myself to. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention that she worked on was uh, the Mighty Zodiac. I feel like I've I've heard of that before, but I don't know too much about it either. Uh, yeah. It's... I can't remember when it came out, like a few, just probably a few years ago, because that one was by uh, Jay Torres, and, and he's a writer. I don't follow his work or anything, but his he's one of those names that was, I felt like I saw used to see his name quite a bit back in like the early 2000s, and then he kind of faded away, had no idea what happened to him, and then uh, they did that Mighty Zodiac comic, but yeah, unfortunately, I I never read it, so I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's not familiar to me at all. So, you know, yeah, it was this is a good education book. for us. Like, I'm looking it up right now just to see if the imagery uh, jumps out to me at all. Yeah, that's uh, unfamiliar territory. So, you know, this this book is a good opportunity for us to educate ourselves on another artist who's trying to contribute to the great fabric of comics arts right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know we'll be talking about her art uh a little bit when we discuss the rest of the book i imagine yeah um other than her i i don't really know any of the well i don't really know any of the other uh creatives uh, the one big name that does jump out to me. Hold on, hold on, dude. You don't recognize Clem Robbins? He's lettered so many comics that we've read. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, what can I say? I don't recognize <laughs> it. <laughs> Dang man, <sighs> that hurts. That that's that's hurtful, dude. You just take the lettering for granted, don't you? I bet uh, you can't even name the starting lineup of all 32 teams. Uh, offensive lines in the NFL, man. What the heck? That's disrespectful. <laughs> Those are the guys that make it happen, dude. How can the quarterback make the play if the offensive line doesn't do their job, man? I don't even know a thing about football, so <laughs> I'll, I'll one up that that statement. <laughs> what you got now? How you like me now? <laughs> I got nothing. Hey, but that's what makes Drew Drew. He he likes all of the details about comics, and that's what he brings to this, to our <laughs> podcast. Whereas all I really bring is the occasional snarky remark. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe an insult about somebody's mother. <laughs> you can't insult anybody's mother yet because we haven't mentioned Todd McFarlane. And- <laughs> I hope your mother someday cheats on her father with Todd McFarland. <laughs> Not you, whoever I'm saying this to. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> I know. I'm just randomly your misuse taking of pronouns. Out of ether. <laughs> you, the listener, that's who I'm talking to. <laughs> don't disrespect our listeners. They're going to stop listening. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, 
I, I, I defer, I'll defer to you in terms of uh, any of the other big names that you recognize, but uh, the one big name that does stand out to me is Karen Berger. Uh, she's also another person that we've talked about on this podcast a little bit here and there, just because her era over at Vertigo is an era that we look to with pretty great reverence because yeah. it just goes back to a period of time when, you know... I, I don't know how else to put this, but when comics were great, <laughs> <laughs> make comics great again. <laughs> no, but you know, just it—it's just that her her period of time as editor over at Vertigo, uh, you know, when Vertigo was still around, it was kind of a high high point for just really creative and artistic comics that were coming out, and yeah, um, you know. When, when she left, uh, Vertigo did go on for a, a little bit while after that. But even that version of Vertigo really was... It, it, I don't know about how you feel, but it didn't really feel quite the same as the Vertigo that I knew. And Yeah, it short, limped short on. Yeah. But like you said, it, it clearly was a pale shadow of its former self. It was no longer... Yeah consistently great you know and and the line was getting cut off at the knees by dc's corporate side where you could tell that they weren't pushing it as hard they didn't prioritize the books yeah it just wasn't just wasn't happening anymore and it's pretty sad the way that it, it all played out yeah ultimately what ended up happening was vertigo you know got shuttered away and we ended up getting DC Black Label. Because <laughs> what is the finest of all liquors? The Black Label. So <laughs> it only makes sense that we assign that quality and moniker to comic books. Because how else will people know that this is the finest of fine comics? Exactly. How else are you going <laughs> to read your... your uh... Adults Harley, only Batman comics. Harley Quinn books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that one of the first things that they ever did for that book, uh, for that uh, label when it came out was, this is an adult Batman book. Check it out. You know how you know it's an adult book? You get to see Batman's wiener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes this groan. It's not emotionally sophisticated or artistic. It's got wiener. <laughs> man we should have bought a copy of that we could have sold it that thing's uh crazy expensive now yeah i did Uh, borrow that batman comic afterwards uh uh from the library when they did the hardcover what was it called batman damned yeah i believe so yeah the azarello libermejo book Uh i I wasn't super impressed by it to be honest It, it definitely wasn't either of their better works yeah I, but the thing is, I don't even know if we would have been able to get a copy of that issue because once that came out, they got yeah. in super big trouble and then they had to, you know, remake those books without his bat wiener. Yeah, they even changed up the digital versions. Yeah. So I think when they first announced it, it was a big deal. So everybody was like, you know, the speculators were buying it up because yep. it's the first appearance of his wiener. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Batman's wang. His bat, his wangerang. 
that's how you know we're a sophisticated and classy podcast <laughs> by all the clever names that we come up with for genitalia. <laughs> you can see Batman's tallywhacker. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but yeah, exactly. They traded Vertigo for Black Label, and that was the kind of stunt that they were pulling to to draw people in to show people this is an adult comic. Yeah, pretty lame, pretty lame. It's a bad direction to go in. And yeah. now that entire line is basically just them going, these are all these are all just adult versions of, you know, standard DC superhero stories, which isn't bad, but it's definitely not Vertigo either. Yeah, it's nothing like Vertigo. They haven't yeah. done anything to really replace Vertigo. If anything, I feel like the spiritual successors to Vertigo would be things like, I guess, Image or maybe even Boom. And, of course, Burger Books. Yeah. Well, they did have... They did try to do that Sandman Universe stuff. I I haven't really read any of it. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you consider that, you know, something on par or you know, uh, of the vestigial tale of the Vertigo universe? I haven't read most of those Sandman books or spinoffs either, but I hesitate to call it a Vertigo, a vestige of Vertigo, because it just feels like they're trying to cash in on the Sandman name. They really were. They were. Yeah. And then you had stuff like Young Animal, too. Yeah, I mean, those are just different imprints, but I think creating a new imprint doesn't necessarily make anything similar to Vertigo. It's more about the, to me, it's more about the ethos and the Mm -hmm. types of stories and the types of comics that the line publishes. And if it's something that's heavily seeped in superheroes like Black Label or even Young Animal, it would be, I'd be hard-pressed to say yeah, that's a Vertigo successor, you know? Yeah. Because I, I, I associate Vertigo with just a lot of weirdness, a lot of... It, Vertigo kind of treads that line, or it used to tread that line between your mainstream superhero comics and your really strange, oddball, underground and alternative comics. You know, it was like kind of that middle ground where... If if you were a kid who grew up reading a superhero com superhero comics all the time, and then you found your way over to Vertigo, Vertigo could lead you down that path to oh, discovering yeah, for sure. something like your Fantagraphics or or you know your pretentious black and whites and and things like that. It's the kind of comic that would blow your your young mind, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and I I think they also I would also say that they published pretty big variety of stuff like it wasn't just centered around urban fantasy or horror but they had a variety of genres and publishers today that kind of do the same thing i think they're probably closer to the spirit of vertigo than something like well whatever dc has going on for them yeah yeah Another one that uh, I wanted to mention, another imprint that popped up a few years ago that was Vertigo-esque was Black Crown, an imprint oh. at IDW. 
Wasn't Karen that, Berger associated with that too, or Shirley Bond? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, who was one of Karen Berger's assistant editors at Vertigo, and she was there at Vertigo uh, for a long time too. Uh, I think she remained there after Karen Berger left, uh, but then after DC shuttered Vertigo, you know, she she was gone as well. Yeah. But unfortunately, I don't think Black Crown lasted too long either. They lasted maybe two years or something. And they did publish some pretty interesting comics. There was a Milligan series called Kid Lobotomy. And they had some other stuff like a David Lapham series, I think. But unfortunately, it's uh, tough to launch these new lines of comics. Yeah, especially when you don't have a guy in a mask punching dudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that definitely compounds the... That gives a kind of a ceiling on your sales, I think. Yeah. Unless well, you're unless you're doing something like Saga or whatever, you know, like it. But how many comics are like Saga or even like a Rick Remender comic or something? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It it ain't easy. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that. It not to you know uh, go too far away from our main topic, but. It's. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny anecdote. Uh, I remember watching, uh, looking at like comments, and you know, you should never read the comments on anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember uh, seeing something on Saga, and one of the people they commented, I, I, I forget what it was about their uh, entire account, uh, but something led me to believe that they were. They're probably a comic skater, but the thing about it was, you know, he was trying to justify how how he liked the comics that he liked, and those are, you know, peak comics, right? So uh, on this Saga uh, video or whatever, he, he basically went, everybody's, I've never met a single person that likes Saga. People just talk about how saga is popular <laughs> really yeah that was like it wasn't verbatim what he said but that was more or less what he was saying in order to you know kind of justify how you know whatever Comics are batman, dying. yeah batman is 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 always going to be around because it's batman but you know people just think saga is popular because they keep telling you it's popular but i've never been a person that actually reads it Maybe that's because he doesn't get out of his basement. I think that's probably true. But the more important thing is he just needs to shut the hell up. (laughs) (laughs) We need to introduce his mom to Todd McFarlane. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he would be super stoked about that because Todd McFarlane is one of the old masters. (laughs) Do you have anything else to say about, uh, you know, any of the other uh, creative people involved with it? I mean, you did mention uh, Clem Robbins. Yeah, he's a solid letterer, man. Definitely seen him in a in a bunch of comics, and including plenty of Vertigo comics throughout the throughout the decades, really. So, yeah, I mean, anytime. You have him lettering, you know, you're in good hands. You don't have to worry about anything looking unprofessional or distracting. 
Nice. Nice. Someday we got to talk about lettering. Like We should have a, uh, an episode devoted to letterers. I don't know if I'm ever fully going to embrace the affection and love that you have for letterers. I think I respect them. And I know that they're a big part of comics. And, you know, they, they're part of the qualitative aspect of comics that we don't always notice or, or like, give the greatest amount of attention to but I, to. I think if you if you intentionally set your mind to pay attention to the lettering in the comics you read you'll start to notice uh-huh. things if you make it kind of an exercise for yourself to just pull out i don't know five or six different comics with uh different letterers and just compare the different styles that people use for different books if you look for it i think i think you'll see differences man you can certainly find amateurish examples in plenty of uh random indie books out there yeah and i I think when it's done pretty poorly you you immediately recognize it it's just when you try and ask yourself like what makes something look bad and what makes something look good in terms of lettering Mm -hmm. then i think that's a pretty interesting and worthwhile mental exercise yeah and you know, it's part of comics, right? Comics as a whole isn't just the pictures and, you know, the plot and the story. It's 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 all of the aspects of it that combine and come together to to give you a whole experience. So I do get that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I don't really like separating the various elements of a comic apart to for the purpose of like rating each individual aspect like i don't like saying oh the the writing gets 10 points and the artwork gets six points but the lettering gets four points and the colors get 7.8 or you know whatever the case may be because that's that's a little too super anal (laughs) yeah that's a little too anal for me (laughs) But when you look at something as a whole, I I think it you know it, you can tell when when everybody on the team is clicking on all cylinders, and even when you have a comic where the writing is very good but the art is very bad, it it's still gonna affect it one way, you know. Like I I think back to something like Alan Moore's run on Supreme, which is really really well written. But so much of the art is awful. And I think <laughs> if the art had been better, then the overall work would have been amazing, you know, but or even more amazing than it actually is. I still think it's a really great piece of work, but the art definitely holds it back. And you can't prevents ignore me it. From, yeah, it, it prevents me from fully enjoying it as much as I want to. Understandable. But it, yeah, it's, it's like meeting the woman of my dreams, but it turns out she's cross-eyed. Huh. <laughs> no. Kind of sounds like you've met someone that <laughs> would have checked all your boxes except for her uh, her eyes or something. Yeah. Her cross-eyedness. Yeah. <laughs> 
sometimes it's just hard to get around those things. <laughs> I, I guess oh, so, goodness. man. Yeah, that, that it, it hurts to say. It, it's... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love all people. Well, not all people. In fact, actually, now that I've just said it out loud, I'd say it's quite the opposite. I hate everyone. But you hate everybody equally. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what makes me lovable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen Berger left Vertigo, and I think she was freelancing for a little while before finding her way over to Dark Horse Comics. And right around 2017, maybe the tail end of 2017, was when Burger Books was launched as an imprint. And looking it up on Wikipedia, their first released comic was Hungry Ghosts Number 1, which went on sale in January of 2018. Hungry Ghost was a comic by Anthony Bourdain and Joel Rose. Never read it. I remember seeing it, but I I don't know too much about it. Yeah. Yeah. And Karen Berger, like we were saying, she's got a great reputation as a as a an editor who really helped push writers to do a lot of their best work, especially within the realm of your mainstream color serialized comics. I mean, she's, she got her, uh, she made her name uh, back in the 80s with DC's British Invasion, things like Alan Moore Swamp Thing and Sandman. And then she started Vertigo. And we had all those other great series for a couple decades. And I, I do notice from uh, Burger Books that they've actually published a couple of former Vertigo comics. Like I guess stuff from that Vertigo had published at some point that ended up going out of print, and the creators must have still had the rights to it. So they were able to. So Burger Books was able to do new printings of stuff like The Alcoholic, Incognito. I think uh, I want to say G Willow Wilson's Air. Was that G. Willow Wilson? That was G. Willow Wilson. G. Yeah. Willow Will. Yeah. The Originals by Dave Gibbons. That was another one. Uh, they did a new edition of that. So certainly a lot of uh, Vertigo DNA inherent in Burger Books because of Karen Berger. Did he? Did they do that one Peter Milligan book? Uh, was that them? The the one the hardcover for I forget the name. You thinking of Enigma? Yeah, was that Burger Books too or no? Yeah, that was Burger Books. Okay, okay, yeah, because I remember they reprinted that and that was kind of surprising because again it wasn't reprinted with DC. It came out with uh, well apparently Burger Books, so that was really mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. You know, when that came out, because up to that point, I think all we had was the paperback for that. So, yeah, that was pretty awesome seeing yeah. all those books get a chance at, you know, a glorious hardcover. Yeah, totally. A chance for modern readers to 
discover or even older readers to rediscover those yeah. books. Yeah. Can I ask you something, Drew? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> Since uh, it's a podcast with you and me talking, it'd be kind of strange if I was like, nah, you can't ask me anything. <laughs> In fact, I don't want you to directly address me at all, ever. Yeah, you, you know what? If you are going to talk to me, make sure that you don't make eye contact with me. <laughs> and I want us to have an intermediary on this podcast. You yeah. will speak to that person, and that person will relay what you have to say to me. If you have a question, type it in the <laughs> chat, and I will look at it. And if I deem it worth responding to, then I will answer. All right. <laughs> Oh, man. Now I'm just thinking about all the preposterous ways that we can just make this podcast more difficult for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of curious what your knowledge of The Girl in the Bay was prior to reading it. Like, what was your exposure to this book? Uh, how did it get on your radar, essentially? I knew absolutely nothing about it other than J.M.D. Mateus wrote it. That was okay. pretty much enough for me. Number okay. one, knowing that he was writing it, and then secondly, to see that it was coming from Burger Books. Yeah, it's I'm a combination, sold, man. man. Yeah, I don't, I don't even have to know what it's about as long as I can buy it and read it. Then I'm good, you know. Did you know that this was something like? Was this something that you just saw on the shelves, or was this something that you saw in solicitations? Like, what was the moment that you were aware that this was a thing? I don't read solicitations anymore because I'm no longer that hardcore weekly Wednesday warrior. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But I'm pretty sure I heard about it just from JMD Mateus's social media. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and up to that point when you saw it on the social media, he didn't mention anything or or you didn't get an inkling of what it was about or anything of that like, right? I mean, he might have mentioned in the post a little bit about what to expect from it yeah i don't know if i really remember that all i know is that he said he had a new book coming out so i was like okay i gotta get his book when they make a trade yeah yeah no it's that's if there's any writer to, that that's worth that level of dedication to uh gmdm is definitely a, on that list of writers for sure yeah i mean for the most part i i generally don't really pay as much attention about uh, what the books are about as long as people I like are working on it. To me, it's more about the creators anyway, so I just prioritize the the people who are working on it over the actual concept or idea. I mean, of course, if it's something that's really weird, maybe <laughs> I'll I'll pass on it. But you mean you you didn't jump on Alan Moore's crossed? <laughs> uh, I've never seen it for cheap. If I oh. if I found it for cheap, oh, maybe I would buy it. <laughs> oh man, I dude, this is dude. the first time I've ever heard you say that. That's a uh, man. So if there's dude, any of you point, good listeners out there who have a copy that you want to send us <laughs> or <laughs> send it to us and we'll review it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Dude, at, at one point, I even had a copy of Alan Moore's Lost Girls. 
I, I guess it's fair to say that that's maybe not quite as extreme as Crossed, but it's definitely in the same uh, lane it might as be, Crossed. I mean, on, on some level, it might be more extreme than Crossed. You think so? It's Lost. You know what Lost Girls is about, right? It's it's him doing like like erotic fairy tales or something like that, basically, right? That is a very simplified, <laughs> generous way of describing it, because it's straight up pornography. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He, he and Melinda Gebby took classic characters, specifically Wendy from Peter Pan, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, and Alice from Alice in Wonderland. I, I, I think it's Alice. I'm pretty sure she's the third one. But he, he takes those, you know, beloved classic characters of children's literature <laughs> and puts them in a <laughs> porn story. <laughs> he, does his, he does that same thing he does with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he creates this <laughs> fictional continuity between these different stories. Yeah. But instead of having some kind of plot, it's just about having <laughs> sex in the most graphic and disgusting ways possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean... You're committed to your comics. You bought it, so <laughs> Yeah, I regretted buying it though. I mean that was one I had I had to sell that after afterward, man. I was like, yeah, I can't I can't keep this dude. Yeah. You just felt I felt dirty having it. Yeah. Okay, okay. I mean Fair. in retrospect, maybe I should have just sat on it because I think it's worth a lot more now <laughs> compared <laughs> to how much I got for it back then when I sold it. But right. uh, whatever. The important thing is that it's out of my life. <laughs> oh man yeah that that's okay. the kind of thing that would get you in trouble if you brought it with you uh to an airport or something or, and you were trying to <laughs> if, if they were checking your luggage and they saw that they'd be like hey what is this and then i could totally imagine somebody opening it up and then yeah you, you're, you're gonna need the comic book legal defense fund or something to help you out wow <laughs> oh man I would have just been like, this belongs to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not mine. <laughs> I'm holding it for a friend. <laughs> yeah. In uh, in regards to the girl in the bay, uh, I probably had even less knowledge about it than you did because, uh, well, quite honestly... I think the first time it was brought to my attention was from you, you know? So you mentioned that that was his new book and I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I, it was just something where, you know, we've, we've got so many books uh, on hand to read. So I, I think I knew that at some point I was going to read it, but it was just a matter of clearing my plate and eventually making the time to, to go check it out. Uh, but uh, when Comics Outpost closed down, I found a copy for it, of it for two bucks. So I just had to get it right then and there, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's quite a few GMDM books that 
well, you know, he's had a super long career and I haven't been able to get my hands on everything. I think there's also a lot of stuff of his that's never been collected and yeah. it's hard to track down unless you're yeah. really dedicated to back issue bin hunting. The one thing that I think I do want to check out maybe sooner rather than later, uh, and this might be pretty random, is he did work on uh, Scooby-Doo. I do kind of want to check that out. I think I might just be feeling nostalgic for old-timey cartoons, even though, you know, this is a, a semi-modern take on Scooby-Doo, but... Scooby-Apocalypse is what it Scooby was. Scooby-Apocalypse, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, hey, man, I think, one, he wrote it, and two, it's, you know, it's a property that I have some affection for, so, sure. Dude, I just looked it up. You know what the premise of Scooby-Apocalypse is? What? I'm just going to read it to you uh, okay. straight off from Wikipedia. and I'll, let, Let's see if you still have a stomach for it after I read this to you. Okay. Those meddling kids and their mystery machine are at the center of a well-meaning experiment gone wrong, and they will need to bring all of their mystery-solving skills to bear, along with plenty of Scooby snacks, to find a cure for a world full of mutated creatures infected by a nanite virus. Oh. That enhances their fears, terrors, oh. and pacer instincts. <laughs> oh. Well. Nanites. Yeah. I just read something this week where I read Wonder Woman Evolution. And that was the thing where uh, most of the story was going fine until the big revelation of it was that Wonder Woman had been infect infected with nanites. <laughs> at that point i was just like ah oh. <laughs> my head just dropped a little <laughs> you do uh, hate your nanites it's it's not a fun story trope or it's not one it's not one that i have any affection for if any at all Ugh. you want me to read a, the the back blurb of the book so our good listeners can have an idea of uh what the book is about did you want to say anything about jmd mateus oh shoot you're right i forgot <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's talk about him a bit uh, yeah he's someone that we've covered on this uh podcast quite a bit he's uh we've we've dedicated several episodes to or, or at, at least significant chunks of time to, to comics that he's done. So We did have an episode on Craven's Last Hunt. We did, and I remember doing uh, The Life and Times of Savior 28 on this episode as one, our book recommendation for, I believe it was superhero comics. So, mm -hmm. you know, and we just bring him up over and over again, and he's a guy that's been working for a really long time. I don't really remember, like when he started but uh, i'm pretty sure his first published works were late 70s i want to say late 70s like didn't he do some of those old old school uh monster comics at dc yeah i do remember getting uh borrowing a collection from the library of his creature commandos i think is what it was called yeah yeah that sounds right either yeah. that or house of mystery or something yeah yeah, well, he also did. I think he worked on I Vampire too, right? Oh yeah, I Vampire. 
Did, yeah. Did he create Eye Vampire? I he might have, because it's. I feel like that's something that he goes back to. You know, another one of his like pet. Uh, yeah, I just looked it up. He IPs, did create whatever. He, he he and Tom Sutton created Eye Vampire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it it was originally a backup story in the House of Mystery. Okay. In the early eighties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, even as a kid, uh, like there were stories that were associated with him that I didn't find out till much later were, were him. I vampire so, or JMD Mateus? JMD Mateus. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the, the biggest one that I was aware of that was associated with him was Craven's last hunt. But Mm. There was stuff in that era's uh, Captain America that he was writing. There was stuff in that that I, I think that they had put on on some of the Marvel cards at the time. And, you know, the thing about the Marvel cards is they never really tell you who wrote it, uh, who wrote those particular issues. They just kind of say, oh, this happened in this issue. Uh, and that's just kind of where they leave it. But... I wouldn't find out till years later that like that one story where Captain America becomes old is is a uh, was a JMDM story. Okay, I don't think I've ever read that one. Yeah, that was something that kind of lived in my imagination just because again, reading the card, it made it seem like oh man, this is a really big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it made it seem like Atlantis attacks was the greatest threat to the Marvel universe ever. <laughs> <laughs> Little did, you know that, little did you know that Steve Rogers turns old at least once a decade. Every, everybody <laughs> does a story where exactly. he turns old. <laughs> yeah, in my child, in my child brain, acts of vengeance and uh, <laughs> Atlantis attacks were the two greatest threats to the human species. <laughs> <laughs> they were cornerstones of the Marvel universe exactly. in your mind. <laughs> The kind of stories that truly left an impact and made sure that nothing was ever the same again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he's he's someone that we've long revered, and um, I think it's really cool that even though his career started all those years ago, he's still able to write such good stories that don't sound dated at all. He's he's truly a timeless writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Drew? Yeah, the first J.M. DiMatteis comics I ever read, it must have been his run in the early 90s on Spectacular Spider-Man. The run with Sal Buscema. Uh That was something that I liked a lot when I was a kid. And even revisiting it over the years as a young man and as just an adult, it still holds up, man. I think that's one of the best Spider-Man runs ever. Yeah. His spectacular yeah. Spider-Man with Sal Buscema, like the art is so good and the writing just has a lot of depth to it. Definitely compared to the other Spider-Man books at the time, it was it was the best one, man. As a kid, I was buying all of them, you know. Like I would be buying Adjectiveless Spider-Man, I'd be buying Amazing, Spectacular, and Web of. And I, maybe as a kid, I I didn't really think about oh which one is the best. It was more just I want Spider-Man, so I'm going to read all the Spider-Man comics. Mm. But definitely the ones that have proved to be the most memorable in my mind are 
the JMDM and Busema spectaculars. Like a lot of the stuff from those comics is still stuff that I remember uh, pretty pretty vividly, if not in terms of the specific plot details, but at least in terms of the emotions. Yeah. I think the first story of theirs that I remember reading was The Child Within, which was about vermin, kind of a follow-up to Craven's Last Hunt. And Craven's Last Hunt was a pretty big thing in Spider-Man's history, in his lore. And as a kid, I, I knew what it was, or I, I had heard about it, but I'd never read it. I had no access to it, and I didn't know that... I don't think I knew that JMDM wrote it unless uh, it was mentioned in one of the letters columns or something. But I had no access to it, so I didn't read it until I was much older. It's just those spectacular Spider-Man issues that have withstood the test of time in my mind with, uh, yeah, the Child Within story, all the stuff that they did with Norman Osborn, or not Norman, uh, Harry Osborn and the Green Goblin. Like one of the most tragic story arcs uh, in all of Spider-Man's villains, you know, the yeah. story with Harry, that that was a really well done story. And I, I don't know why Marvel has never reprinted those comics. Oh, well, actually, I know why. Because they hate <laughs> us. <laughs> well, but, I was also going to mention that that stuff that you're mentioning, I, I think the the people might not be aware of it, but the stuff that he wrote between Harry, uh, you know, Harry Osborn and Peter Parker, that's like the basis of a bunch of the, you know, Spider-Man stories that we've seen in the movies and in the comics. The You know, the idea that Harry... Osborne has this vendetta against Peter Parker, that really like dramatic kind of hate, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to be fair, I I think that dynamic was already in Spider-Man even before him. But what JMDM did was he gave it some finality. He he upped the pathos, he raised the stakes, and then he gave it a conclusive ending. Yeah, yeah. And that's what makes it powerful, because if it just stayed the same way that it was in the 70s, it would have forever. petered out. Yeah, <laughs> petered out. I like I like what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but him giving the story finality, that that's a payoff that is extremely worth it, man. And it makes it makes that whole run so powerful. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to me that other other comics eventually brought Harry back and kind of, you know, moved on past that story that JMDM and Sal Busema did. Like, just in and of itself, man, it, it holds up, it works, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's issue 170-something up to, uh, like, 200. Like, mm. that's... That's the chunk that people got to read. Because yeah. he, he did continue to write more Spider-Man comics after that. They're kind of scattered here and there. Because I think he did some stuff with Amazing Spider-Man. And uh, wrote a lot of stuff during the Clone Saga too. Yeah. But it's it's hard to keep track of those comics. Just because it was a messy period in Spider-Man. And there was a lot of editorial 
fiat that kind of dictated what the writers were supposed to do and where they were supposed to take the story. You know, it's just a bunch of people writing chapter 13 of a 14 chapter story or whatever the case may be, you know? Yeah. Just really messy stuff. But the the run when he was able to just tell his own stories was really good. Heck, even some of his Ben Riley stories that weren't interrupted are still pretty solid, if you don't mind. Him being a clone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny that you talk about this era, because I remember, and, you know, again, I might be remembering it wrong, but I do remember reading, like, either an interview or something with Jim Diem, where he talks about how, for the longest time, he... I guess the big deal for any Spider-Man writer was to write the amazing Spider-Man, you know, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that was kind of the, the flagship Spider-Man title. Yeah. But it just felt like every time they had him working on Spider-Man, it just wasn't that, you know. So they put yeah. him on Spectacular and he tried to do, you know, the best that he did. And it was amazing what he did on uh, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. I'm getting confused, man. Amazing or spectacular? (laughs) (laughs) Amazingly spectacular. (laughs) But then the funny thing is when they finally did put him on Amazing Spider-Man, it was Ben Riley the clone. (laughs) Well, he he did have a couple issues with Peter Parker, too, because remember, he wrote the Amazing Spider-Man issue 400, which is a really, really great comic. It's the story where Aunt May dies, and it's really touching and moving. Never yeah. mind that some other writer later on said that, oh, it wasn't really Aunt May. It was just a really talented actress. Yeah. But if you disguise. just ignore, <laughs> if you ignore what some other writer did later on to bring Aunt May back, yeah, just issue 400 on its own. If they ever did a story where Aunt May dies, that's the story, you know? I mean, that's the one that captured every emotion that you would expect Peter Parker to go through if Aunt right. May died right 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 yeah well the, the the other thing that i feel is worth mentioning is uh, they are finally putting spectacular spider-man into omnibus form so they are yeah i think the first omnibus of that just came out uh like a couple of months ago so it collects what the first 30 something issues yeah, something like that. Maybe even 40. Okay, okay. Yeah, so... If they if this Omnibus series makes it to, like, volume 6... Exactly! <laughs> <laughs> if, if it does well enough and they keep print, printing them out there, when they get to volume 6, you gotta snatch that one up, because that's the one that's gonna have... <laughs> uh, his uh, JMDM's run on Spider-Man, and we'll finally have it collected. But knowing them, it'll probably be split into two omnibuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like they'll they'll collect the first half in Volume Five with a bunch of other random Spider-Man junk that you don't want, and then exactly. to get the rest of his run, like maybe maybe not even half of it, maybe just like the last four issues of it. <laughs> You'll have to buy another omnibus that has all these other Spider-Man comics you don't want. Exactly. These. These people, they're unbelievable. Marvel is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, they just need to make a single big hardcover specifically collecting his run on Spectacular Spider-Man. That's all yeah. we need, man. Yeah. 
you know, that's they wishful thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did you Is have there anything, anything else? else that you want to say about JMDM before we dive into the girl in the bay? Like, what would uh, you say are some of his pet themes or something that characterizes much of his style or his work in general? Yeah. The thing about JMDM is I don't really know how else to describe him, but he's kind of an old hippie. (laughs) (laughs) So he's, he's definitely a person who likes to write on themes of peace and love, tends to talk a lot about human nature and how we can transcend that nature to become something better. When he's writing about that and he really goes off, that is something that I do really love about his work because it's the kind of thing that fills you with optimism and hope. And maybe if you're a cynical person, it's it's something that's, that you can't necessarily wrap your head around or get over. But, you know, deep down inside, there's there's a part of me that wants to believe that, if only for a moment, that we can be better if we just open ourselves up to it, we can allow ourselves to to truly change our hearts and be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think a lot of his work likes to explore the nature of life and reality. There's a lot of metaphysical and philosophical leanings in his work. He likes to tell stories that deal with things like human mortality, existentialism, the meaning of life unexplainable spiritual beings, even things like alternate worlds or alternate lives and and the choices that that you make that lead one way or another, the possibilities, I guess, of, of choice and the road not taken. Those are all things that I see in a lot of his work. He's, from what I know, uh, he's also a follower of Meher Baba, who was this uh, spiritual guy who who went by, uh, I don't know exactly all the details of the religion that he started, or I don't even know if it's considered a religion, just kind of this kind of like new age spiritual movement. Uh, he's calls himself the avatar or something, right? And I, I don't really know a whole ton about it. In fact, everything I'd probably do know about it is probably just from reading J.M. DeMatteis' comics. <laughs> but I, I I did notice that he seems to inject a lot of his stories with the teachings and spirituality of Meher Baba. So there are things where even like the guy's face, he's got a mustache and a, and a smile like you'll see that kind of imagery show up all the time in various DiMatteis comics, and I think that's probably also a reason why a lot of his stories, like you said, have a lot of hope and optimism and positivity and those kind of good feelings in them, like those kind of vibes. It's probably a result of his uh, his own spiritual beliefs. Yeah, and like I guess I'd add to that, I do think regardless of whatever. You- you know, our own personal beliefs are, it's, it's not a thing where I look at it and I'm like, this is indoctrination or whatever. 
he takes whatever it is that he sees in his beliefs and applies that to his stories, right? The the elements of of that belief system that appeal to him and that move him, those are the things that he injects into his stories. And, you know, we've talked about it here just now. Like, it's just uh, ideas that are uplifting. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, because for me personally, I'd say because I'm a Christian, there's a lot of stuff in general that I read where the beliefs or the worldview presented in those comics or stories definitely conflict with what I believe in. So I, I feel like I'm less sensitive to things like that in, in the sense that I don't really get offended by the kinds of uh, ideas that people put into their story because I don't take my own personal, you know, worldview system and and build it from the fiction that I read. So I'm just able to try and take it and take what I read and, and look at it from a different perspective in the way that you know the the writer is communicating these ideas and yeah. you know that probably reflects stuff that he believes and i don't necessarily have to believe the same thing in order to appreciate and enjoy his fiction exactly you don't make the work conform to exactly what you believe in yeah, order for yeah. you to enjoy it <laughs> yeah i'm not going to throw it on the ground and be like this isn't this doesn't reflect my beliefs. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, the I point of reading most, these most comics... things I read don't reflect my beliefs. So exactly. I exactly. couldn't read anything if, if <laughs> exactly. I had to do that. <laughs> this is the worst Charlie Brown ever is. <laughs> He's indoctrinating us. <laughs> uh, you want me to go into the synopsis? Sure, man. All right, I'm just going to read it off the back of the book because they, they'll probably say it in a more succinct and clear way than I could ever put it. In 1969, 17-year-old Kathy Sartori, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I think, I think that's, that's correct. Is brutally attacked. Her body hurled into Brooklyn's Sheep's Head Bay. Miraculously, she survives, but surfaces 50 years later to find that a doppelganger has replaced her and lived out an entire lifetime in her place. Kathy soon confronts not just this strange double, but the madman who murdered her five decades earlier. Will he and the dark entity that hounds him hold the key to Kathy's missing years? Or will the girl in the bay become a shadowy ghost, haunting a world she desperately wants to be a part of? How is that? Now I need you... To read it in your 1920s Chicago <laughs> gangster voice. <laughs> right, see? 1969, see? Yeah. Well, I don't know. That all of a sudden became a prospector. <laughs> and I, I all of a sudden just became an old miner. <laughs> Woo-wee! Two dogs! <laughs> uh, I will say that the basic summary the premise of the comic is pretty intriguing because once I picked it up uh, and I read that, I was like, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. That's a good hook. You know, that's a good concept to draw me in because I, I bought this not knowing anything about it. And just looking at the cover, it's hard to really tell yeah, what it's about. Yeah. So when yeah. I got the book in the mail, uh, when I ordered it, 
and I, and I finally took a look at the back cover. I was like, oh, okay, this is what it's about. That's pretty intriguing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's You're right. Uh, when you look at the cover, it's basically just a young woman who's, I don't know, floating, I guess, floating towards you. And then you see, like, all this water around her. And, yeah, on its own, it it, it really doesn't inform me about what this work is about. It's so. an evocative image that draws you in in a different way because it, it taps into more of an emotional space, mm-hmm. but it doesn't tell you anything about the plot itself. It's It's more about inviting you in. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You want to give any uh, general thoughts that are spoiler-free before we spoil the book? Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. After reading that synopsis, it, it did give me a better idea of what exactly we were about to consume. And jumping into it, I will say that as I was reading it, there, there was a part of me that was functioning in a way where I was constantly dissecting it and trying to figure out just based on what I know of JMDM, how this book fits into his body of work as a whole and what it was trying to say, I was trying to figure out what the meta commentary of it all was. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that was constantly happening beneath the surface as I was reading it. So it's a pretty compelling murder mystery in and of itself. And because it has elements of magical realism, I guess, it's this added extra layer of trying to figure out what exactly the source of it is. So Mm -hmm. I did... I had a pretty good time reading it just just based on the mystery and also all of the other existential and philosophical aspects of it were just things that kept me engaged in the work. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like sounds like Pepper is engaged in something right now too. She is. She is. <laughs> what were your thoughts on it, Drew? I think my thoughts are pretty similar to yours. Anytime I read something from a familiar and beloved creator, I'm always thinking about how this work that I'm reading fits in in the overall scheme of his general bibliography. And I'm making those kinds of comparisons and uh, in my mind as I read along, trying to see what are some of the themes and ideas that I've seen play out in that creator's other works. So when I was reading The Girl in the Bay, I I was looking at it from that perspective, as well as just enjoying reading a story for the first time, because I do think this is pretty fun comic to read, even if you don't read, even if you haven't read any other jmd mateus comics or you don't really follow his stuff i still think it is a good piece of work in and of itself like you were saying the murder mystery aspect of it and the the confusion of being hurled forward 50 years in time and finding the stranger living out your life there's something very interesting about that especially uh yeah when the story first starts and you you don't really have any answers, and you're just going along with the main character, with Kathy figuring things out as she's figuring them out. I think 
JMDM and Corin Howell do a really good job of capturing that sense of confusion, that sense of disorientation, all the things that you would expect somebody to experience if, you know, they were in that situation. Yeah. 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 And on top of that, I think the philosophical elements of it, I think those things do add quite a bit of depth to it. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think there are stories where people try to layer uh, philosophical mumbo jumbo into a story and it doesn't really do anything except maybe make it more confusing or just kind of obfuscate the plot. I don't think that's the case here because the plot is still pretty easy to follow along. Yeah. And there are just enough layers of, uh, I guess, magic or supernatural things mm. along with the philosophical elements and existentialist elements that, you know, they give it depth. It's something that you can read uh, just for the plot. But if you do want to think about the ideas that are introduced in the story, there's space for that as well. Yeah. Overall, I'd say it's a pretty enjoyable comic. I would definitely recommend reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, regardless of your tastes or whatever, you know, like if if you only like to read superhero comics, I would still recommend this comic to you. You know, it, it's just a book that's easy to consume and. Uh, I think does have more depth than your typical comic. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that all the, you know, philosophical and uh, introspective observations that the book makes, like, I think there are occasions where, like you said, there are uh, comics that put a lot of that stuff in there and it doesn't necessarily work, but it works here because, it's really intricately tied into what she's experiencing, right? So it's the idea that she's displaced from her the entirety of her life and thrust all these decades into this world that she doesn't recognize. And she experiences all these different feelings and emotions that understandably would go hand in hand with that, with something so jarring happening to you, right? And, yeah. And on top of that, when she goes into the future and, you know, she sees this woman who's lived out this entire life that was essentially hers, it it causes her to ask questions about her identity and her existence. And again, it completely makes sense that, well, you know, that your average person would have these questions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose if the story was about someone who's a sociopath, it wouldn't matter to them. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I do like how uh, the philosophizing, for the better lack of a word, uh, fits in perfectly with uh, what what she's what JMDM has built into his story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the story is narrated internally by Kathy, our protagonist. JMDM's writing is 
very catchy. It's something where it never really feels like he's just writing words to fill up space on the page. It's very, so he's got a very conversational, warm and inviting kind of tone. So the story never feels like a slog at all. Like all the, the actual uh, prose in the story, all the text, it's very easy to read, pleasant to read and conversational. He, yeah, he's got a good ear for dialogue. Even the, yeah, and like I was saying, the narration, he has a good ear for what works in comics narration as well. Just the way it's paced and knowing when to let up on on the words and let just let the pictures do the talking. Yeah. It's interesting that you you mention or discuss his dialogue, uh, you know, the the way that he has his characters speak. For a guy who, you know, is Wait, I, wait, I, can I guess what you're about to say? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Are you about to say for a guy whose career started in the 70s and 80s, he doesn't write like someone that old? Because uh, I, think, I think there are writers that from that era that, <laughs> uh, you know, let's just say like your Chris Claremonts or your Marv Wolfmans or somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who kind of rose up in the same time period as DiMatteis. But when you read their dialogue, it's super dated sounding. They sound like they came from that time period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that what you were well, about to say? Uh, I think you were far more diplomatic than I was. I was gonna say for a guy who's as old as he is, <laughs> for him to, for him to be able to write in a way that doesn't feel dated, is actually quite impressive. Um, yeah, like you just mentioned it. There are a lot of people who you might consider his contemporaries or people who started a little earlier than he did. And when you read something of the uh, when you read something that they wrote today, you can tell that they came from a, a very particular era of writing. But JMDM understands that it's not about trying to copy the the lingo and the slang of young people. That's not the thing that sells it, right? Uh, right. It's it's not that idea of hey, I get to have these, this is a book about kids, so I gotta say, have them say rad and tubular, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, right? It's not really about that. And for for Jam DM, uh, for Dia Mateus, it really is just sticking to the core idea of just how do people talk when they're just talking, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well. I, I'd even change that a little because when real people talk, there's a lot of people use a lot of words that they kind of hang on as as crutches or or words or sounds. You know, there's a lot of ums or uhs or they tend to repeat things that they just go back to because it makes them feel safe. But so all you listeners, you can play a drinking game by <laughs> taking a shot every time Albert or I stutter or say uh or um or repeat a word over and over. Exactly. I'm pretty sure there are a, a bunch of words that we tend to just rely on, uh, you know, to fill space when we don't know what to say. I think so, I constantly 
use the word and or but to connect all of my thoughts. <laughs> but I really That's... need to just shut up and stop talking. <laughs> we definitely use a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah's in there too. And uh, there's definitely a lot of ums. So we are we are very aware of it and we are trying. So <laughs> but that being said, uh the the thing that makes you know a good writer is being able to give you the best possible version of that dialogue you know the ideal version of of that dialogue so mm-hmm. and i think jm uh jm d mateus does that like to a t yeah yeah definitely what are your thoughts on corin howell's artwork uh, if I had to be honest, there are some scenes that are pretty interesting to look at. I think the way that is Corn Howell a woman? Yeah. Okay. I think the way that she draws faces aren't necessarily to my liking, or huh. you know, it's really? fine. Yeah, it's fine. I I'm not like super in love with the way that she draws uh her characters' faces, but I do think that. The settings and the the ethereal imagery and the the I guess yeah the the magical stuff is is pretty cool to look at or like I'm I'm looking at this one page and there's this uh, monster creature apparition that haunts one of that haunts the character Hugh and he's truly a grotesque looking creature. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, in in the way that she intended him to look, to be disgusting to look at, and she captures that pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm curious, what's an example of an artist who draws faces that do appeal to you aesthetically? Um, well, the thing is, the way that she draws the faces, I I don't necessarily think they look bad but i just think that they're a little too boxy you know she kind of uh reminds me of of like a charlie adler or something like that but oh now you gotta disrespect my boy charlie adler <laughs> no i mean i meant i like charlie adler's work but i just feel like the way that she draws faces is, are a little too cubic for my taste or a little too square oh okay you know huh I guess so, I didn't really think of it. I th- I feel like for me, my litmus test for a square-shaped face is Ron Lim. <laughs> because if it's more squarish than a Ron Lim jawline, then it's yeah. too square. But uh, if, as long as it's less squarish than Ron Lim, I'm, I can live with it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ron Lim's still good, though. Uh, I do I, love my Ron Lim. Yeah. I'm just saying that I noticed he, he likes drawing his square line jaws very much. It's kind of a trademark of his style. That's true. Everyone's kind of got a really boxy looking head. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I love, of his Silver Surfer and Lim. it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love Ron Lim. Silver Surfer was my favorite comic when I was a kid. Yeah. So he drew he drew the heck out of that. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying, like... I don't like my faces drawn more squarish than how he draws them. Like his square. I don't know if you can draw more squarish than his. though. (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing. I don't know if that's possible. (laughs) Uh, 
They could look like SpongeBob SquarePants or something. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I mean that's just a personal that's just a personal taste of mine uh as as it applies to this comic, but I don't know. I I I'm interested to hear what you think of her artwork. I like it. I think in combination with James Devlin's colors, it's a really good combination. It's pretty slick, pretty clean and uh i think the colors they're pretty vibrant in this book like most of the things that you look at in the comic are pretty bright Mm. pretty warm even though it's a story that deals with a murder and this you know there's a lot of grim stuff with murders and and death and this abomination looking uh spirit creature thing <laughs> yeah even though there's all these kind of grim elements in the story i feel like it's oriented around beauty more than the ugliness yeah yeah like various pages just make me think that uh they really had a good time producing these pages not just in terms of the line art but the colors as well like there's just some really pretty pages i'm looking at uh issue three there's no page numbers in the trade paperback edition but it's the scene when kathy is looking at a painting of the i guess the woman or the deity or the spiritual being uh that she's been seeing in her visions She's looking at a painting of that character and then she falls into the painting and the way that it's drawn and colored, I don't know, it just reminds me of a a really good looking cartoon or some kind of animation. It's it's like not, maybe not quite psychedelic, but kind of close to psychedelic. And then the next Mm. scene on the next page when she wakes up uh, in, in the lap of that figure in the painting that's colored. It it looks like it's colored in a different kind of style uh, from the first page to indicate that she's in this different world. Even the line work seems a little bit uh, hazier. It's really serene looking. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, stuff like that makes the comic pretty interesting to look at. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty well lit comic and a a bright one. So there, there are definitely points where, Sometimes uh, things that are supposed to be freaky or scary don't look quite as grotesque as they could have been if another artist had gone that route. But I'm pretty sure that's intentional. Like, there's still a quality about uh, Hugh's spirit guide. I can't remember what the proper name for that creature is but uh like when you look at chapter two or issue two and it starts off with hugh on the on the bench uh talking to this figure who's a little bit off panel you know that it's building up to something and he's talking to somebody pretty mysterious because even that guy's word balloons are lettered differently so Mm -hmm. when you when you when the camera starts to pan a little bit and you start to see little hints of the creamy puss or whatever 
this guy is made of at the edge of the panel, uh, you start to prepare yourself to look at something strange. And then when you finally flip the page and you see who he's sitting next to on the bench in the second page of issue two, you see that creature. He is, uh, he's pretty grotesque. And I do think that when I first flipped to that page, I, did, I kind of flinched just because the guy looked so weird. <laughs> and and then there's other pages later on when uh, that guy does some pretty bad stuff. And yet there's always this quality where he looks freakish, looks pretty scary. But at the same time, there's something a little bit comical and silly about him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it's it's he's kind, kind of, of unnerving. I, it's not a jawline, but the way that his teeth are. Like, even though they're sharp and menacing, they're all also all over the place so that he's kind of goofy looking. Yeah, and his yeah eyes, he's pretty goofy. And his eyes don't really seem to be set in any one particular place. They just seem to be constantly... He's cross-eyed. <laughs> they're rolling around in the ocean of his face. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just kind yeah. of constantly on the move. And it, it just adds to that element of... Again, he's he's kind of gross, but he's also kind of ridiculous to look at yeah yeah and I, I like what you said about how his eyes just kind of roll around in the ocean of his face because just the fact that uh corin howell can convey that through her art is pretty impressive even the idea of this guy's skin being these sacks of puss that you know or boils or something that pop and stuff yeah it, it like when you think about it, it's kind of doughy <laughs> yeah kind of doughy yeah. Almost like, I guess, kind of like Clayface or something. Yeah, but that's a good way. Like, that's... if Clayface's DNA started to horribly degenerate and he was infected with some kind of disease. I mean, there's this one page later on, and again, there's no page numbers here, but I want to say it's right after, like, a couple of pages into Chapter 3 where Hugh is talking to him, mm-hmm. and he's just melting into... He's sitting in a chair. This creature is sitting in a chair, but he's just totally oozing all over the chair, you know? Yeah, and that just gives you an idea of what his consistency is. He's he's physical, but barely. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty gross. I wouldn't want to stick my finger in that. <laughs> uh, I I don't know what reason there would be to do that, but yes, I wouldn't want to do that either. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like what you had to say about the coloring, because the coloring is is really nice in this book, and you know. Saying what we said earlier about how I don't necessarily pay attention to some of the elements of comics that are so very important to comics, the coloring here does jump out at me. You know what it kind of reminds me of? On on some of them, it kind of feels like, what's that coloring that color scheme that you mentioned earlier? Psychedelic. It kind of reminds me of like psychedelic coloring, right? And then in some of these other pages, it reminds me of that 80s synth wave, new wave kind of color style. Mm you know yeah miami vice or something yeah 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 exactly exactly (laughs) (laughs) but the fact that they just apply all these color palettes to it and it's never anything even though the the nature of the book is on some level or there are elements of the the book where they do go to dark places most of the time you get these pretty vibrant color palettes like you were saying that like that's what i was kind of mentioning earlier where uh you know when you look at some of these pretty trippy scenes they're pretty nice to look at so Mm -hmm. 
there's this one scene in uh, chapter one where a young version of Catherine, that's her name, right? Catherine? Yeah, Kathy. Kathy, where she meets Hugh, the younger version of Hugh, and it's kind of billed as this moment's moment of romance between these two characters, and you see the outline of the two of them sitting there and talking to one another, and you look at the the skylight, and it's it's pretty beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. It's you just see these whirling balls of lights and these swirls. It just seems like a really beautiful moment between these two people. Did you want to start talking about uh, spoilers and dive into it? Sure. So in the first chapter, what we end up seeing is it starts out with Kathy meeting this stranger at at a bar and we kind of get an idea for what who she is she's kind of a free spirit it's it's around i want to say uh it's 1969 so you know we're just kind of on the cusp of the end of the 70s and i don't really know where 1969 is situated uh, relative to like what's been going on in history but it's a period of time where i'm pretty sure the way that Kathy is described as just this free spirit is pretty consistent with that era of time. And she ends up meeting with Hugh and they have what seems like a beautiful night together until what ends up happening is he stabs her and throws her into the bay. Uh, he murders her. What's more and- romantic than that, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> you- Maybe if you did that on the first date, you could have... Well, I guess that you wouldn't be able to have any more dates after that. This is our first date and our last date. Hi-ya! <laughs> Hi-ya! Uh, yeah, that, that, that goes well. And then she thinks that she's about to die, but she struggles against it. You know, her, her desire to live propels her forward. And next thing she knows, she's drifting through this weird mist i guess and she awakens in what she thinks is her world but when she walks around she realizes that her her childhood home has long been her family's long left that home and she begins to make the connection to to understand that decades have passed she's really in the new world now and the the person that is occupying the home is an old family friend and she informs her Kathy uh, is actually still alive. She just lives in the suburbs. Now she goes over to the suburbs and she's shocked to find this older version of herself who's lived this full life. You know, she has an understandably violent reaction to this because what is, what is happening in this moment? Right. Yeah. By the end of chapter one, she's, She's pretty shook to her core, and we see that Hugh, the person that murdered her, he's there too. He's he's still alive, and he's right across from the park and watching this all play out. So that's the first chapter of it. Did you mm-hmm. have any thoughts about that's this particular section? Was there anything that jumped out at you, Drew? I think it's... 
really intriguing first chapter because I, I mentioned earlier how the first issue of the miniseries does a good job of drawing you in to this mystery because you're about as disoriented as the main character when you see her waking up in this in 2019 uh i mean obviously as the reader uh you know exactly what's happened but you still feel or you can empathize pretty easily with her sense of confusion mm. um when she goes to visit her her future self that's pretty intriguing also because it's one of those uh kind of like a a what if scenario like what if you could see how your life turns out 50 years in the future and get a vision of that or not i guess in this case not just a vision but she can actually interact with herself at 50 but it's also confusing because we all saw her get stabbed and thrown into the bay so it does just enough to give you this mystery but it also gives you uh a sense of yeah just this is intriguing and i want to know what happens and and see uh you know put the connections together and figure out exactly why this happened and how it happened and if there's anything that they can that she can do to fix things or or go back and prevent her murder yeah yeah i mean that's the sort of the natural starting point when you enter this right is it, it's such a jarring transition and i think the natural instinct for all of us uh at least as uh as we're reading this is oh how does she go back to the way things are right mm-hmm. um yeah, uh, but you know, I, I don't want to jump forward too much quite yet. But it, it's, I don't know. I feel like that's a, a another JM DM like trait or signature trait, which is telling these stories where you think it's going to go a certain way, and then by the end of it, it's almost like I, I don't want to say it didn't matter. But, yeah, I guess it's almost like it didn't matter because at the end of the day, the journey that we go on or being able to go on that journey is is almost what's more important, you know? Yeah, and I think on some level, to a certain degree, I might even say that a lot of Dimitri's stories are stories where the plot itself matters a little bit less than the character development and the things that they learn along the journey yeah yeah right like well i I guess we're in the spoiler free section so i'll I'll, no we're we're in the spoiler section or spoiler section right so i'll say yeah yeah uh it makes me it, it makes me think of something like moon shadow where again he goes wait, wait, on this... So you're about to spoil another comic? <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that what we're doing? Okay, never mind. <laughs> but I'm it's... just I'm just giving you a hard time, man. Say what you want to say. <laughs> well, okay, okay, okay. Here's what I was gonna say was it's it just feels like 
the story sets up these stakes for these characters where, again, the natural instinct for us as a reader is how how is the status quo uh, – how do we revert back to the status quo by the end of it, right? And I guess for the kind of people who need to have – plot resolutions that neatly and clean, uh, neatly clean everything up. Uh, it might be the kind of storytelling that would be unsatisfying to you. If you can't just look at, you know, the character's journey as one where the point of the journey is more important than, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm her going back and going back to 1969 and being able to live out the rest of her life essentially right yeah 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 um speaking of uh some of his pet themes and some of the things that we see in his other works too i do want to bring up the concept of someone else living out your life because i feel like that's something that we've seen in some of his other comics too and i don't know if it's intentional in uh, across all of his works. I don't know if he's like consciously trying to think of ways to tell these kinds of stories where somebody else lives a where a character lives out somebody else's life, or you get some kind of uh, I don't know some kind of variation on that idea. But there are other comics too where you see something that he's other comics that he's written where you see something like that because uh, in in the girl in the bay obviously we have kathy finding her older self as a what like a 70 year old woman or or whatever age she is who's lived out this full life and you get some hints of the older kathy's life because she has a granddaughter and uh the little details that you can see in her house with all the art and the family photos and things of that nature. You know, you get little hints that yeah. this person has lived a life, a uh, life completely, you know, off screen or off panel, apart from our main young Kathy. And I, I think that's something that we also see in other DiMatteis comics, like Craven's Last Hunt, obviously, with Craven uh-huh. living out Spider Man's life. And then I would also say, uh, to some extent, maybe even going sane, uh, the Joker story that he did in Legends of the Dark Knight, where the Joker becomes basically a different person, living lives out a totally different life. Uh, and even though he doesn't meet himself, you know, we as the reader know everything about the Joker and what he really is. And when we see him living out this alternate life, after he thinks he's killed Batman and becomes sane, you know, it, there's a similar idea at play where you're l- looking at a character living out a different life that could have been if a circumstance were different. Mm-hmm. Another one would be Hero Squared, which was uh, an indie superhero comic that uh, DiMatteis did with Keith Giffen back in the early or mid 2000s it was actually the first boom studios comic i think but in hero squared uh the premise of that is it's about this kind of a slacker young man in his i guess 
probably early 20s or something, uh, and his girlfriend, they meet alternate universe versions of themselves who happen to be superheroes. Specifically, the guy uh, from the other universe is like this really buff version of the main, our main uh, hero, except, or our main character, except he's, you know, like a Superman type, essentially. And then the girlfriend's alternate version is a supervillain where she has a scarred face and is out to, you know, get revenge against her ex-boyfriend, the superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And like all four of them end up meeting each other. And there's this really weird, like, I guess it's kind of like a sitcom. There's like bits of comedy where the interactions that they have with each other are about what you would expect in terms of uh, figuring out how did how did this alternate version of myself turn out so different from me and, and things like that. But then mm-hmm. on some level, fundamentally, they're still like the same people at heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, you get that idea of just different choices that these characters have made could have taken them down a different way. And in, in Hero Squared, the characters actually see what happened to their lives if they had gone a different way. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting that that's something that crops up constantly in DiMatteis's comics. I, I don't know if that's intentional or uh, if, if it's just something that subconsciously happens. But it's it, it's definitely interesting to see him play with that idea as you read a bunch of his different works. Yeah, yeah. I do like that, uh, you know, that concept of just how minor changes can take people who are just, you know, at their core, theoretically the exact same person, but just, again, how the the flapping of a butterfly's wings could substantially alter the trajectory of your life, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's something that I was thinking of when I was reading this first chapter, and it's... It's one. It's interesting that uh, you know the the comic takes place in 1969. That was something that jumped out at me. And the other thing is that this guy Hugh that ends up killing her. He. I don't think there's any other. I'm, I, like I assume that this is in, intentional, but the guy's got like a mustache and beard, and he obviously made me think of um, Charles Manson. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you find out that he's a killer, uh, that that makes sense, right? Yeah. And the thing that it made me think of was uh, the Quentin Tarantino film, uh, Once Upon Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, yeah, the thing about that is, as I was reading this and I was, you know, seeing uh this imagery this symbolism uh uh or the iconography of this guy looking like charles manson um i remember listening to this essay or or like this interview that quentin tarantino did where he talked about how the manson family murders were kind of that and along with these other cultural touchstone moments in in that in the final period of the 60s those Mm -hmm. were kind of the the moments that killed the idealism that denoted the end of that idealism of kind of hippie culture. Right. Because after that we jump into the seventies and things just kind of get crazy with 
you know, drugs and uh, 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 just the the level of violence and just craziness. Like you have Son of Sam and uh, all these serial killers and yeah, yeah, that entire period just it it it's interesting to think of that entire period preceding it. You know, uh, say what you will about hippies, love them or hate them, but uh, they're that entire idealism of a world of peace and, you know, people learning to like love and care for one another and having it all end with, uh, yeah, what Quentin Tarantino was saying was when, when Charlie Manson and his cult went on their murder spree, that was just kind of the end of that period. So reading this book, when I looking at Hugh uh, kill her and then, having this jump from her to the future and seeing this older version of herself. I think the first thought that came to my mind was, is this going to be a story about a younger version of herself seeing what the older version of herself has become and, you know, kind of that death of idealism, like what, yeah, it's kind of if you look at a lot of the people that were hippies then and what they are now, uh, they've you know the they're the I, I guess we call them baby boomers or boomers or whatever you know uh, whatever your preferred okay, nomenclature is. Yeah, <laughs> um, like those same people eventually grew out of the the idealism of their hippie roots and apparently a bunch of them ended up voting for trump you know how do you go from that to that right (laughs) so so they wanted to make america great again dude he was going (laughs) to restore the hippie era but that was the thing that that was that that was something that i was thinking about beneath the surface as i was reading this i didn't quite know where uh dimateus was going to go with the story um i it was there's definitely a moment of culture shock when she, when Kathy goes to the future uh and we see it throughout the book in bits and pieces where she's talking about you know social media and the news and just how it's just all kind of trash you know it's loud it's just, and noisy it's loud and noisy it's meaningless and and yeah i i kind of wondered if this was going to be his take on just what happened to those young idealists you know yeah that's a good point there is a this undercurrent of disillusionment i think yeah like the other character oh no 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 go ahead i was i was gonna mention the character of uh winston burton yeah uh if, if you're okay with us talking about issue two, yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's introduced in issue two as this guy who's a singer-songwriter type or a rock and roll uh, hero of the of the '60s who ended up. I guess he's like a ghost, right? Yeah, he ended up overdosing, and then when when Kathy is walking around in 2019, she sees his spirit, and apparently he's just been rooted in place because of. Uh, the fans won't let him rest and she's the only one who can see him but she kind of gives him an anchor to move on 
from that location and and go wherever she goes. But he's basically like a John Lennon type. Kind of yeah. looks like him with the glasses and the and the long hair. Did you look him up? Did you do you happen to know if he's a real guy? If those were real songs that they were mentioning? <laughs> um, I, no, I just assumed that he was a fictional character. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. <laughs> Man, it'd be it'd be strange if uh, they made the story with a, a real person. Like if they did that with if he was just John Lennon, right? Like yeah, yeah. Huh, that <laughs> I don't know. I think that might take me out of it more than. Just coming up with a a fake uh, rock star. I mean, I, I I ask that only because they he quotes certain songs in there and uh, certain song lyrics. So my mind, once once I read those, uh, the first place my my mind went to was, wait, are those real songs? Do those songs actually exist? I don't think so because if uh-huh. if they quoted real songs, I think we would see a a trademark an acknowledgement of the copyright okay. Uh, okay. somewhere in the book, you know, because there's like a certain number of lines when you quote a poem or a lyric from a song, you have to acknowledge the original copyright holders. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that there's nothing like that in the book just made me assume that. Yeah. Even the lyrics were written by J.M.D. Mateus. And he yeah. does have musical talent. He, remember, he did release a music album back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You can look it up. I think it's on YouTube, last I checked. Nice, nice. So you see, for those of you that are listening, that is why whenever we sing Ja Rules, What Would I Do Without My Baby, we can only sing so much of it before we get slapped with a copyright infringement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> If we if we sang too much of his lyrics, if we <laughs> if we did that, we would be in trouble. Yeah. It's not that we don't know the entirety of the song. Believe you, believe us, we know it all. <laughs> what would I do without my baby? What? The what? thought alone would drive me crazy. What? Cause every thug needs a lady. Where you walk, the way I talk. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> this must be the only podcast to talk about the girl in the bay that also quotes Ja Rule. Put that on a blurb. Like, yeah, that should be the selling point of our podcast. <laughs> we talk about J.M. DiMatteis comics and Ja Rule. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I'll go into chapter two now, unless you had no, something else you wanted to say. So what we see in chapter two is it starts out with Hugh watching everything going on at the house over uh, where Kathy has just re-encountered the older version of herself. And as we're observing that, we see that Hugh has this being uh, that is essentially a voice in his head uh, that's been manipulating him or guiding him to do this. We didn't see him in the uh, earlier chapter, but we see him now that he's years older. This is this warped creature. This, I, I think it's fair to say that it's just a gooey puddle monster version of himself that's talking to him, you know? Mm-hmm. And it looks like him if he was just 
you know, straight up marshmallow goo. And, uh, you know, with these really big teeth and uh, just oozing all over the place. Uh, after that, we see that Kathy is being, uh, is aw- awakens to, to the, to the home that she, that the older version of herself has made for herself. And she's really trying to adjust to the situation before it just becomes too much for her. And she runs off. She ends up in Times Square and, you know, this is the, the fish out of, uh, not, not, not fish out of water moment, but this is the moment where she enters our world and makes observations about, just how loud everything is and observations just about, you know, our culture and how, I guess, vapid and cold it all is. While in that moment, she needs to know how to survive in this, but she reaches into her pocket and all of a sudden she has money on her and she has all of the things that she needs to survive. So, you know, her survival doesn't really become an issue. She gets a hotel and she take some time to rest and resituate herself while she's wandering and lost in thought. That's when she comes into the, the spirit of Winston Burton, this hippie iconic singer that, you know, tragically died too young, but is forever anchored to the ethos and era of the sixties, the spirit of that era. Yeah. We, we see a little bit of his life and it's for her. This is, kind of a the the only connection that she has in this world now mm-hmm. and she makes a friend with him we we go back to Hugh and we follow him around and what we end up seeing him doing is he's he's breaking into Kathy's home and the older event, one huh the older one the older one exactly and he eventually is just driven by the voice to murder her again the young version of Kathy is just in this bad place now where her coming back has instigated all of all of these events to fall into place. And uh, she when she goes to visit Kathy in the funeral home, she touches her body and a flood of memories enters her from Kathy's life. So she's able to see things that happened in Kathy's personal life, but she's also been able to see things and events that happened and occurred over the 50 years that she's been gone. She goes and she meets and talks to the man that the older Kathy would eventually live out the rest of her life with, you know, in, in, me, in a way to to make some sort of connection to this person that is her. It's this weird dynamic of this person is me, but she's not me. But Mm -hmm. by seeing her life play out, it, I don't know if it gives her comfort or not. I want to say that it does. It's maybe it's like a morbid curiosity where she just wants to know what, if this person is me, what decisions did she make? What life did she leave? lead, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the chapter ends with the creature that is influencing Hugh, essentially telling him that now he has to kill the young version of Kathy. Yeah. I think this issue continues to expand the world that 
Kathy, that young Kathy is inhabiting now. There's, there's another thing about this chapter that kind of reminds me of some of JMDM's other works, which is the uh, idea of just being a fish out of water and or being in this new, in a new world. Like I, I've seen that play out in some of his other stories, especially his uh, like children's stories, stuff like Abed Azad or the adventures of Augusta Wind. Just these stories where the protagonist falls into this new world, kind of like Alice in Wonderland, except here in this situation, it, it's not a fantasy world, but it's just 50 years into her future, which might as well be a fantasy world. It's, I'm pretty sure from her point of view, it, it's pretty out there. Like the world didn't turn out exactly the way that she probably thought it would have. She's seeing all sorts of different things. And the fact that she also sees what is essentially a ghost of her favorite rock star and ends up getting into a relationship with him. There's a a lot of that sort of a girl out of time kind of feel to it, you know? Like she's definitely exploring this new world, even though ostensibly she's trying to solve a mystery and figure out how this all happened. And then once... We get to the end of the issue when the older Kathy is dead. Young Kathy decides that, you know, it's up to her to to find out who did this. And that's probably going to be a key for her to either get back home or just set things right somehow. Yeah, I think this this particular chapter just did more to confirm in my mind that I think the expectation it was building for me was, again, it was leading up to this whole idea of her being this child of the 60s, this being a younger version of her. We were going to see what it was like to grow up in this really idealistic era and having her reconnect with essentially what is the spirit of the 60s and this singer and going on this journey together. That was kind of my expectation was, oh, well, how how does this deconstruct those years that have passed and what life has looked like since then? And I, I, I think that was the sense that I get. But then Hugh goes and murders the the older version of her. So that that was something that I wasn't expecting. I thought the ending of the story was going to be this metaphysical reveal that, oh, you didn't really die that night, but it was just this really jarring uh, like a christmas carol or something kind of right like this really jarring uh traumatic thing event that happened to you and as a result you know your idealism died way back then and you just grew up and became this completely other unrecognizable person Hmm. that's that's kind of where i thought yeah you're right something like a christmas carol is but then Hugh murdered her, so <laughs> <laughs> like he murdered the old version of her. And at that point, I was like, okay, then I don't really know what the direction of this story is after that. I mean, yeah. not that I had a problem with that, but I was like just content to go on the ride at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention what you just said, there is something about the story that also reminds me of another Mateus comic, a Superman comic he wrote called Where Is Thy Sting? It's been a while since I've read that one, but now I want to 
pull it off my shelf and give it a reread because from what I remember, that comic was also about dealing with mortality and the idea of death. And I want to say, if I'm remembering it correctly, I think in that story, Martian Manhunter has some kind of device that allows Superman to have this vision or to see a dream uh, about what would happen if he died or something to that effect. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe Superman has a Kryptonian device that allowed Martian Manhunter to see that. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but the the main thing I do remember is that it's a story about exploring mortality. And with these superheroes, obviously we've had stories where heroes have died, but you know they always come back. <laughs> right. But I think in that story, Demetrius kind of ignores the... No, well, not ignores, but I think he acknowledges that superhero comics are just a certain way because they're corporate entity owned. Yeah. yeah. But you can still use those characters to tell st- meaningful stories about the human condition. Yeah. And many humans in general think about what's going to happen when I die. You know, like yeah. what. Is there a soul or what, where do I go? Or is it just, you know, annihilation or oblivion or whatever the ideas may be? It, it kind of feels like this story sort of touches on that too. Just in terms of Kathy's journey, young Kathy's journey, and then seeing the corpse of her future self and then being imbued with all those memories. She kind of, in essence, experienced a, a whole nother life that was also kind of her life. So now she's got these even more powerful feelings about the value of life and, yeah. uh, you know, specifically her own life. Yeah. Which she's she got already values. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just adds to the, to the deep profundity of her feelings. So I, I find that pretty interesting, especially seeing how Demetrius likes to, touch on those kind of ideas yeah. just the mortality and and yeah i guess the the temporal impermanence of human life it's something that is never too far from a lot of his stories except his stories never really end up feeling depressing there's always some kind of hope yeah. or optimism undergirding them and i think yeah. reading the girl in the bay even though you know it's got these dark ideas and themes I think when I was reading it, at least I was just waiting to see like how would how would he bring me back out from the darkness into into the light at the end of this yeah. story? You know, that's that's yeah. the I feel like that's the journey that I was preparing myself for. Yeah, yeah, and it's and I think for a lot of people, again to 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 kind of go back to what we were saying earlier, but for a lot of people going out into the light means the status quo, right? Which is by the end of this, I want her to go back to, you know, I want her to go back to 1969. I want her to be with her family and I want her to get to live out the rest of her life knowing that this experience was something that changed her forever. And, but you know, none of the bad stuff that comes with it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, and the thing is, uh, the thing that I appreciate about Demetrius is that he doesn't stick to that convention 
where again like when we talk about something like Moonshadow from what I remember of the ending of that that wasn't a thing where it wasn't a, an ending where everything gets back to normal as much as it's an ending where someone makes peace with the things that have happened to their lives makes mm-hmm. peace with the the tragedies and it's about yeah ultimately it's a story that's about what it means to triumph over them and it 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 doesn't shy away from the fact that bad things happen to us in life yeah because bad things are going to happen and you know this isn't a superman comic where someone will die and at the end of it they get to come back to life uh uh in real life you know we we have loss but we continue to live in spite of that loss and i i do think that that's something that's at the core of uh jmdm's stories is that idea that people uh are more resilient than we realize and mm-hmm. that there's a way to live on in spite of you know terrible things happening to you yeah yeah i agree with that yeah so did you have anything to say or can i go to chapter three you can move on yeah yeah so in chapter three what we end up seeing is we learn a little more about hugh we learn about what happened to him after that night after he killed her and we find that the following night he goes to a bar and he sees uh kathy alive and he even confronts her and she doesn't know who he is at all and in that moment that just breaks him and for the next following years after that he ends up in a mental institution yeah because you know apparently he wasn't crazy enough when he murdered her but seeing that she was still alive was the thing that pushed him over the edge (laughs) (laughs) i guess nobody caught on to his crime yeah yeah uh afterwards we see that kathy is really just trying to make sense of her entire situation after getting that flood of memories she feels compelled to go see uh kathy's uh the older kathy's husband so she makes it a point to go out there and you know try to make a connection with this with this man that was such a pivotal such a big part of her life towards the end and and the emotions that she got from the older kathy just reinforce that sense that she needs to talk to him and know him um so she goes over there to his house and you know shares a moment with him to discuss uh just what what their life together was like just so she can know him better and they eventually go out to the park and you know it's it's a moment of peace that she can give to him offer to him but also a moment of peace that she can get for herself in trying to make sense of all the things that have just happened. And unfortunately, the chapter ends with uh, Hugh having kidnapped her granddaughter. And that's that's where we leave off in chapter three. 
Yeah. 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 I think again, this just continues the uh, the journey. Uh, I don't know if I have any unique or specific commentary for this chapter. There are some scenes in here where I, I really do like the uh, art and the coloring in particular. Like the scene early on in the book when old Hugh is reminiscing and or remembering the night when he went back to the bar uh, after um, he committed the murder in 1969 and he sees Kathy there again, but she doesn't recognize him. I don't know. It, I guess that one page, it's uh, it does give me those synthwave vibes, like you were mentioning earlier, <laughs> with the the color scheme. Yeah. Uh, there, there's another scene a few pages later when Kathy is is dreaming about the time when she was thrown into the bay, and she's, you know, it's the it's the page where, uh, it's the page that gets repeated throughout the story as kind of this recurring motif of her falling into the water. Um, and at the end of this one, of this specific scene, she wakes up and we see that uh, she's bleeding out in the water. She meets that. I don't need again, I don't know what to call her other than like this deity underwater, the woman in the older Kathy's paintings. And she uh, kisses her, holds her hand, and then they they kind of swim into this glowing orb or some kind of water thing underneath the water uh, and then you know you flip the page and kathy wakes up from or she just gets out of the bathtub or something uh that whole sequence is uh pretty minimal in terms of words but really really visually appealing and i think another thing that i would say is that the the way that the blood is colored it, it doesn't really look like blood or like not just the way it's colored but the way it's drawn too like it it looks more like an umbilical cord or something which is strange because i think the blood is just really colored this bright red it doesn't really match the the way that the rest of the scene looks underwater and the way that the blood is coming out it, it just it looks like right a, out of her belly yeah, it comes out of her belly. It looks like a cord, and it. Yeah. It's uh. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. I I think there well, might be some kind of symbolism to it, but I I don't know what to to make of it. Well, I'm looking at the previous page, and what you see is when she's re reliving that moment where she falls into the water. The blood actually does look like blood in that early scene. It's still, you know, yeah. it's it's mixing with the water, so it's it's kind of breaking up. And she's you're watching a close up of her face as she closes her eyes. And then, you know, when the the green lady shows up, she's flying or, uh, you know, floating down towards her to to pull her from the water. But the angle that she's coming down from, you're right. It totally makes it look like it's an umbilical cord that connects the two of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. I feel like there's there's probably something to. uh to make of that detail but i'm I'm not really sure it's pretty cool looking uh the 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 look of the blood the it looks like this long silky ribbon sort of thing yeah and, like the red yeah, and string of fate or something yeah and then when 
you know, after she kisses, the green woman kisses her on the cheek, she grabs her hand and they float into this giant light. But I mean, if if we follow that imagery to its natural conclusion. Oh, OK, OK. Yep. You get what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess when you, uh, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, it's kind of like this Rorschach blot, but certainly you can see it as a, as a, It looks you like know. a vagina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's being birthed into the world. <laughs> I, yeah, and she does come back out of the water on the next page. Yeah. 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 You know what? You're right. That I think that's what I think that's what we're supposed to see. Yeah. It's a rebirth of sorts. And yeah. it totally makes sense with the way that she is in the following scenes, because in this chapter, Kathy does feel like she's more confident, maybe bold. She's, she's got more this confident. new resolve. Exactly. She's confident. She's bold. She's got this new resolve. But she also isn't as she isn't as much of a fish out of water as she was in the previous chapter. She, all she knows is she felt these really strong emotions when she touched old Kathy's body and received those memories. And in that moment, she just wants to be with, uh, I forget his name. Um, uh, she just wants to be with her, her, Old Kathy's husband. Was it Kenneth? I, I forget to. Yeah. Yeah. There's this one line that I was looking at or uh, she was talking about it or where she she goes. They're at the park and they're sitting there. And. And she's just narrating, narrating to herself or narrating. And she goes, I told myself it was because I needed to know the truth unravel the mystery but it wasn't it we belong together at least that's how it felt maybe it was the old woman's memories influencing me maybe i was just lonely or deluded but in that moment i didn't care i just wanted to be there with them after all in some strange or possible way they were my family mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i just thought that was uh you know really well written and just a testament to this new sense of connection that she felt with this family that realistically speaking, she shouldn't have any connection to other than the fact that this woman that looks like her, uh, happens to, to have lived this full life and had made these connections. But because yeah. of, uh, you know, because of that transference that occurred between the two of them, now all of a sudden she feels it stronger than ever, and it's compelling her to go and be with them. And mm -hmm. and that's another, you know, just, I guess, pet theme of Demetrius, which is the the power of human connection. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's always something that uh, characterizes so much of his work, the connection between loved ones in particular again going back to something like craven's last hunt peter parker stays alive and gets out of the gets out of being buried because he's got mary jane to to cling to you know 
yeah. Or or something like uh, Doctor Fate, where love is this big theme of the story. When you have these different characters turn into hosts for for the Doctor Fate concept, you know, like the thing that anchors them to their humanity is their love. Now I'm sure you can find plenty of other examples in in things like Moonshadow or Brooklyn Dreams and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. It's I want to talk about Hugh a little bit uh, in this chapter. Um, so it almost seems like Hugh and Kathy are this weird reflection of one another or opposites, I guess, because. The way that Kathy has this green deity, Hugh has this, you know, monstrous creature thing that uh, watches over him, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we learn a little bit more about him in this chapter, too. Uh, Certainly more than in the previous chapters, because up to this point, he's just been the guy that killed her. But... We learned in the years after that he was in the mental institution and when he gets let out, um, you know, he goes to live with at home with his family. But they're just so afraid of him that they don't really make any connection with him. And it even gets to a point where he, he even says that he just stays in his room all the time because, you know, the the people that should love him don't. And they're just afraid of him and he just doesn't know how to be with them. Mm-hmm. And when he finally decides to leave and go out on his own, he ends up stalking Kathy and he doesn't live a life. What he does is he watches Kathy's life and he watches as, you know, she she has a family, grows old, has children, all these things. And at some point he even says to this you know, puddle monster that's with him. He tells him that he wanted that stuff. And all the creature can really say is like, did you really think that that was, you know, that you were ever set up for that? Was that really, is that really how you envisioned your life playing out? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I, there's something there too. I I don't necessarily know what to make of it, but it is interesting to think of, how how his life turned out compared to how old Kathy's life turned out, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's, a good point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to move on to Chapter 4? Yeah. Let's finish it off. All right. Chapter 4 is entitled Time's End, and what we end up seeing is uh, Kathy going, you know, going in search of Hugh because he's kidnapped uh, old Kathy's granddaughter and she confronts him, Hugh and this monster. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what's been going on. And we find out that Kathy is really not, she really isn't the Kathy, the older Kathy that we know. Um, basically, the Kathy that was stabbed in the water that day has these powers or, you know, 
there are a few people in the universe, in the world, who have these powers, and Kathy apparently is one of them who is able to alter the universe via sheer force of will. And as a result, in that moment that she was stabbed in 1969, she willed herself into not dying. But as a result, the Kathy that was stabbed and bleeding out in the bay was, for the better lack of a term, uh, a, a psychic shadow or a remnant of the of the Kathy that uh, that was in the water. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't know if I'm explaining it accurately, but that was more or less my understanding of it. Yeah, I think that's better than how I could have explained it. Oh, thanks. So, uh, yeah, in that moment, they they battle it out, and we see, you know, just how uh, when Hugh went and saw that uh, Kathy had survived, he had knowledge that Kathy had died as well, but he was not able to reconcile the fact that she had both died and not died at the same time. Uh, that, that knowledge was too much for him and it broke him. And that's, that's, that's what ended up happening to him mm-hmm. um, for all those years uh, until the moment that she reemerged. And he felt that the only way to make himself sane again was by, reconciling the fact that she she both died and lived at the same time so you know he he wanted to kill her to to put a final end to that note they're able to save the granddaughter and winston as a result is just uh sent into nothingness uh while they're battling it out and while all that is happening, uh, Hugh and Kathy engage in one final uh, confrontation with one another, and Hugh ends up being stabbed by his own knife. Um, with Hugh dead, the the being that uh, has been haunting Hugh no longer has any uh, presence in the world, and he too uh, fades away. And in the final moments. Uh, Kathy speaks to the, the the green woman and she they basically tell her that you know the universe she basically tells her that you can make what you want of this life at the at, at this point now you're you're free to you know go into uh to go into the great beyond you know Mm-hmm. Um, what we finally see at the end is Kathy, old Kathy, uh, because of the the powers that be, old Kathy ends up in bed with her husband, and it was you know it was all a dream essentially, but <laughs> but the final shot of it is Kathy and Winston back, and they're following the Green Woman. And the way that they talk about it, they are just excited to go on this journey into the great unknown, you know, whatever that may be. Um, Yeah. And it ends with her saying, uh, 
well, I'll just read the the page, but but that meant that I'd really create. Uh, but that meant the reality I'd created the night I was murdered, the new world, the new life I'd pushed into being was restored. She was alive again, and that I and that I suddenly realized was why I came back to stop Hugh, to give her, give them another shot at life, and my life. I had no clue what it was or what it would become. But I was the Brooklyn-born Siddhartha, right, right, seeking the answer to the riddle of the universe. And this was one hell of a riddle. My name is Catherine Angela Sartori, and I can't wait to see what's next. And it's just this really upbeat, optimistic, beautiful ending. Um, mm-hmm. And again, for people who who wanted her to go back in time and like live out the life that she was meant to live. It doesn't really do that. It breaks that convention because it really just becomes about her releasing her from releasing herself from the bonds of, uh, I don't know how else to put this, but like worldly things and, and entering the great unknown, the journey of the unknown. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, an ending that I think kind of typifies the J.M.D. Mateus style in terms of the optimism and the hope. Uh, I think another thing that I realized from this last issue is that it does feel like a story about these, like there are these higher powers that that people don't necessarily understand and i think in this story kathy doesn't necessarily understand this green woman uh, or at least not to the full extent like there isn't really a page of exposition where the green woman tells us like yeah all of the underpinnings of the structure of the story or anything like that. There is a war going on between these spirits. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. It's, it's all just left to our imaginations. Yeah. She just, they just take each other's hands and, and walk into the sunset. Well, not literal sunset, but you know, metaphorically speaking, they walk into the light. It's another, yeah. I feel like it's something that, we, have we see seen this quite a bit with in, yeah, endings. yeah yeah like yeah. I, I, again i think of something like his dr fate or moon shadow uh you know there's a lot of stories where the characters just go through a whole lot of kind of harrowing stuff uh-huh. sometimes like really heavy stuff and at the end of it they're still able to I guess find some kind of peace or some kind of joy or happiness. Yeah. There's a, again, like some kind of unexplainable higher power involved in a lot of these stories, but I feel like D. Mateus usually makes it clear that there's still some level of, I, I guess, human actualization. Mm. Like we're not, like it, it feels like a lot of his stories are about how, people aren't puppets to these kinds of higher powers. They might be looking out for people in a certain way, but at the end of the day, people still make choices and those choices matter. So if you have the power of 
imagination and optimism, you can walk into a brighter future. Yeah, yeah. I do, like, the more I think about it, I do really appreciate... I, I think there was definitely a time in 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 the past where I would have read a comic and I would have felt a sense of... I would have felt like there was there wasn't a sense of closure because again it's like oh I don't really get to see her go back I don't get to see things go back to normal right and or or there's this whole thing of I don't I didn't get an explanation for what either of uh, the green monster or the thing that was hunting Hugh was and and you know there's all these bits and pieces that are left unanswered but I do think that I've come to appreciate those kind, this kind of an ending where, again, it just kind of says that those answers don't necessarily matter. What matters is the journey that they've been on. And it's okay for us to, to like, in the same way that she relinquishes the desire to, to, for her life to go back to the way things were, it, we as readers should relinquish ourselves of that desire to to get a definitive explanation and ending for everything, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like you don't same. have to have absolute control over everything. You can exactly. just ride the wave, you know? Exactly. Just, just be at peace with it, with not be at peace with not having every single answer or every single mystery deeply explained exactly. in, in crazy expository yeah. detail. Just, you know, appreciate the ride for what it is. Exactly. And then look towards the future. It reminds me. I think I told this story last week, but uh, or or I, I I either told it on the podcast or I told it to you, uh, Drew, on on in in conversation. But I I had this conversation with someone about Sandman. Oh couple, yeah. <laughs> like a couple of months back, and they were you know this was Sandman by Neil Gaiman, and. My friend read it and he he thought it was dumb because Sandman is supposed to be this all-powerful being, but Sandman ends up being captured by this cult. And he was like, "How does that make sense? How did <laughs> how did they capture him? He's he's supposed to be more powerful than like a god. That I don't get it." <laughs> like when he said that, I wanted to slap him. <laughs> and Next then, time you see him, you should. And then on top of that, uh, the first arc of Sandman is about how... Uh, so Sandman gets captured by this cult, and his relics, these, uh, these artifacts of his, end up being stolen by this cult, and they get lost out in the world. So it's about Sandman going out into, into the world to find these relics again, right? So my friend goes, well, how did how did they get a hold of these relics? They have to go into the giant hourglass. Why didn't he just blast them? <laughs> like, it, yeah, I just I wanted to give him a swift kick in the nuts when he said that. Like, <laughs> to tell me that you couldn't enjoy a story because details like that didn't add up to you. It's like it every everything <laughs> that has some kind of supernatural element has to be 
a power fantasy or something. Yeah, yeah. That's weird to me. It's it's a pretty simplistic way to look at those kinds of stories. Yeah. But I have a feeling if he read, if that same friend read this, he'd probably be more bothered by the fact that he doesn't know what the Green Lady are or why this girl has these powers in the first place. Like, it's not enough to just say that she just was able to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Because why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Please, I'm okay I, with I, it. I implore you, those of you who listen to our podcast, don't be that kind of reader. Please. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that to yourselves. Don't do that to us. <laughs> I think when I first read the ending, especially that last page, I think my first impression was that it felt kind of abrupt. Not that I didn't appreciate the idea or the sentiments behind the ending, but I think it just kind of felt like having one page to wrap up the the narrative and, and then like you get those last three panels that are just you know, maybe a third of the page uh, as they walk into the into the light. I don't know. There was just something about it where I, I felt like I would have. It would have been nice if if that if those three panels had received. I don't know, like a full page or a couple pages or something. But maybe maybe after this conversation since we've talked about it and I've had more time to let the story percolate in my mind. It it doesn't really bother me anymore. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, to go back to just, I guess the recurring theme that we've been discussing, it's just, again, just releasing ourselves from, you know, feeling that need to, to have everything, uh, uh, you know, neatly laid out before us. I mean, I will say this. Um, there are instances, certainly, where those kind of details, you know, do matter. Those kind of stories do matter. But I think with a story story like Girl in, Girl in the Bay, the emotional journey is clearly what the focal point is, Right. Mm-hmm. So I can, as a reader, discern what's important here. And those sort of story details don't matter quite as much because, again, it's really about how did she get from point A to point B in her emotional journey more than it is about uh, – it, yeah, it's – I'd even say it's more about her emotional evolution – than it is about, you know, well, where did her powers come from? Or, you know, or whatever. Or just stopping a murderer. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. Yeah, the story is more... It, it's a story that deals more with her finding her place in the world, figuring out who and what she is and what she's doing. It's, you know existentialism and 
figuring out the meaning of life by examining death from these various facets and also seeing the life that she could have had. I do think we're just we should just be okay with realizing that there are certain things within the story that aren't going to be fully explained. I think we get enough hints yeah. to make sense of everything. Exactly. So exactly. If someone were to complain about not getting all of those answers like spelled out in blatant detail, I don't think I don't think this story needs that. Yeah. And yeah, like you you were saying, man, the the kind of reader who who does need all that, it it must be hard to enjoy a lot of stories. Yeah. Like I'd even say for the kind of people who look at that and go, that's not realistic because you need an explanation. Uh, well, I'd, I'd even argue that it, on some level it's more realistic because in real life you don't always get the answers to anything, you know? Yeah, I have no idea why my life is the way it is. Oof. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I'm going to put my head between my knees for a second. <laughs> well... That's better than putting your head in a blender. <laughs> or the oven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But again, uh, just to reiterate, like, I, I think I think the conclusion I've come to is, like, when, when I read a story where the plot is the main thing and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, where, where the plot is the main thing, then those details matter, right? Then inconsistencies affect that. At that point, it's like, okay, uh, well, it, you know, like, okay, let's say we're talking about something like a Bond movie or Jason Bourne or whatever, right? And we're we're talking about like a conventional action film or something. At that point, it's like the plot does kind of matter because it's very plot driven. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh. So so when something is inconsistent there, then I feel justified in complaining about it. But now, if you told, like, a story about James Bond being, like, you know, having an existential crisis and the ending of the movie doesn't necessarily end with a neat package, but I'm totally on board with uh, Bond's existential crisis from start to finish, okay, I can ignore the fact that the laser runs on like ice cubes or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 You've just reminded me of that episode we did a while ago on identity crisis from DC comics. Yeah. Cause that, that's a story that hinges heavily on the plot. And when you get, when you don't get those kinds of details to explain things, the whole work really suffers because yeah. then characters are just acting the way they are because well, they're either stu- it's either because they're stupid or because the writer didn't really bother he thinking. himself into a corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and he didn't really bother thinking about all the like realistic reactions or or how people would process and think through their actions. So, in those kinds of cases, yeah, the, then the details of the plot would make a, a bigger difference. Yeah. Yeah, just learn to be a more discerning consumer of literature and fiction. <laughs> you know, don't 
don't don't just uh, apply a broad brush stroke to all of it. Just learn to know when when certain things are acceptable and certain things aren't. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. all I ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. You got anything else? Nope. I guess in terms of final thoughts, I would just say I really enjoyed The Girl in the Bay. Uh, I think it's certainly a worthy addition to J.M.D. Mateus's Uber or bibliography. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I have too much more else to say beyond that other than I liked it. It was good. Check it out. Here, I've got a question for you. Yes. What are some things you would recommend to someone who's read this and wants to read more? Uh, the first thing that I thought of was The Many Deaths of Lila Starr by Ram V and Philip Andrade. Uh, I might have mispronounced his name, uh, so I apologize for that. But that's a comic from Boom that came out, uh, I forget, like within the past year or two, probably. It's another story that has magical realism elements in it. It's also a story that deals with uh, examining human mortality and death. The premise of it is that humanity is, or there's a person who's about to be born who's going to discover the secret to immortality. And as a result of that, the avatar of death is sent to Earth to live as a human, as a as a as Lila Star, the titular character, and as a result of this, uh, she ends up like each issue is about her living a life and then dying and then being reborn to live again, uh, while finding a place or finding a way to uh, you know see if there's a way to stop that cycle. So it, in a way, it kind of reminds me of something like Day Tripper, uh, the Vertigo book from. Mm. Uh, Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon. Mm. But for some reason, yeah, reading The Girl in the Bay just reminded me of the many deaths of Lila Starr, which I read, I don't know, maybe like half a year ago or so. Uh, yeah, they're both they're both works that have this, uh, you know, philosophical undergirding and uh, these existential questions, but also a lot of uh, evocative artwork and emotional heart. So that, that that was the first thing that came to my mind. Nice. What about you, man? The first thing that came to my mind was Neil Young's Greendale. This is a comic by Joshua Dysart and Cliff Chang. My understanding of it is they took a song from Neil Young and basically took the... I guess the skeleton of it and turned it into a comic book story. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a story that uses magical realism to tell a story about essentially about America and about how, about the disillusionment of the American ideal Mm -hmm. about having uh, visions and about the, the way that the country used to be and just, what it means to have that corrupted and ultimately what it means to find faith and hope in, 
in in the country that you believe in all over again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's something that i would recommend yeah i haven't read that one but i do want to check it out because cliff chang is one of my favorite artists and joshua dysart is a writer that i've been getting more into recently so i've been trying to seek out more of his stuff yeah well let me know if you're ever interested in it well here let me read the the back cover it'll probably give you a better idea but it's early 2003 and america's march to war seems unstoppable yet you never know it in the quiet northern california town of greendale where 18 year old son green great granddaughter of the man who helped carve this community out of the sweeping western coast lives loves and dreams son is different from most other kids always has been the woman in her the women in her family have all had a strange relationship with nature but in almost every instance the relationship has turned tragic and on the day the bombs began to drop halfway half a world away a stranger arrives in town that only son can see a stranger who's come to shake her very existence by destroying everything she loves uh guided by music legend neil young and based on the album rolling stone voted one of the best of its year acclaimed writer joshua dysart from unknown soldier and fan favorite artist cliff chang from human target compose an inspiring american fable about a young woman's political coming of age all infused with a special brand of magic mm-hmm. another yeah. vertigo book another vertigo book totally so if you ever want to borrow it drew you're welcome to it i don't want to borrow it from you i want to steal it from you i'm gonna break <laughs> into your house knock you out and grab it and go home <laughs> i'm gonna sock you in the face so you, that you lose a couple of teeth so that you'll <laughs> always live with the scar and memory of the time that that horrible thing happened to you every time you look in the mirror and see your toothless smile you'll be <laughs> re- reminded that i stole your copy of greendale <laughs> every time <laughs> every time you speak and you whistle from that gap in your mouth <laughs> you'll remember it because I did that to you. (laughs) (laughs) You I have a couple other recommendations. I actually just thought of them uh, a little while ago while we were discussing The Girl in the Bay. But uh, my next recommendation is a manga series called Erased by Kei Sanbe. That's a story that deals with uh another it's a it's a murder thriller like a crime thriller story about someone who also travels in time except in this case it's about this character named satoru who has this power where anytime something bad is about to happen or a life-threatening event is about to happen he has this thing called a revival that triggers where he goes back in time with just enough time to prevent that life-threatening incident from killing somebody. And he has to keep on doing that. He keeps on reliving those moments until he saves that person's life. And uh, that's just kind of like the premise of the story. But the overall plot is about how his mother actually gets murdered and his ability, instead of just sending him back in time, you know, a few minutes or whatever to prevent his mother's murder, it actually sends him back in time 18 years into the past. So he's got his, you know, 29-year-old mind inside his elementary school body, and he's 
got a chance to like relive his life basically and and uh you know appreciate his mother all over again but also uh figure out how he can get back to his own time because you know it's it's a lot different now and the other complication is that when he was a kid uh there was a string of child serial murders that happened so now he's going to try and use his adult knowledge from the future to solve these unsolved crimes from the past. Yeah, that's something that you're regularly recommending to me. So it's definitely on my list to check out at some point. Yeah, yeah. It's not a super long manga series. It's only about, I think, six or eight volumes, maybe. So it's it's definitely something that you can just borrow from the library and read within, you know, a week or, or two or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like it a lot, man. Yeah, nice. <clears throat> um, I guess another recommendation that I have is Brooklyn Dreams. It's another JMDM joint. And, you know, it covers a lot of the same themes that we discussed uh, in this episode. So, uh, you know, if you want to explore another work that will inform you and give you uh, a better idea of uh, his writing and uh, uh, the the pet themes that he tends to discover, Brooklyn Dreams is a pretty good example. Um, Really, any of the other comics that we've mentioned that he's worked on would be pretty good for your JMDM education. Um, Brooklyn Dreams in particular, though, is an autobiographical story that he tells about a period in his life, and there's certainly a lot of... It's it's semi-autobiographical, right? Yeah, semi-autobiographical. But there's a lot of uh, magical realism in that as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my last recommendation is a video game called life is strange specifically the first one yeah yeah that's another story that has time traveling elements but this is a graphic adventure so it's a slower paced story based kind of game where you uh, explore talk to people and make different choices but the hook is that your character the protagonist has this ability to rewind time to uh, you know, undo mistakes, and that's part of the gameplay where you solve puzzles and things like that. But the the story is pretty powerful because it 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 also has you know dark stuff like it deals with murder and even suicide and things of that nature. But it, yeah. it's also a story that uh, has a lot of optimism underpinning it, where you have um, you know hope and uh just the appreciation of life and things like that you know the idea of of trying to constantly go back and redo things is almost like this futile thing uh futile exercise and and you can't really completely guarantee yourself a a perfect world so there's this element of it where it gives you this uneasy kind of feeling where you have to just be satisfied with the choices you make and i think that's sort of the point of it you know the point of the story is to 
recognize that you make bad choices, but you got to live with them and just mm-hmm. do the best you can. And, you know, I'm keeping it pretty general because I don't want to spoil it in case anyone wants to play it. But it, yeah, it's a, it's not super long. You can probably uh, beat it in like a week or something. Mm-hmm. It's like a five episode game where each episode is equivalent to one or two hours of gameplay. So you could treat it like a TV show and it's on like almost every platform, I think, you know, PC, all of the, all of the consoles. I think it's even on Android and iOS. So yeah, nice. first episode's probably free as well. Nice. So you can just try it out. And just to stay on brand, there is a comic book based on it as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, something worth checking out if you end up liking the game. Yeah, yeah. I've only read the first trade paperback, maybe the first two of the comic based on the game. Uh, if I ever get the opportunity to read all of it, yeah, I would definitely want to check it out. Nice, nice. Yeah. Some good choices. Some good choices. And so if anyone uh, wants to DM us or, you know, uh, ask us any questions about what we read or has any recommendations of their own that they'd like to make, you know, feel free to hit us up on uh, Between the Gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can totally DM us at Between the Gutters on Instagram or uh, tweet at us and we would totally love to hear from you guys and, uh, you know, whatever you happen to be listening to us on, if you could give us a, you know, high rating, that would also help us out as well. Sweet. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters. You've been listening to episode 156. Next week, we're going to discuss Murder Falcon by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. So stay tuned for that. Also, just as a heads up, for those of you who have been listening to us for a while, you know that the past couple of years we've enjoyed doing series read-throughs where each month one of our episodes covers one volume of uh, a finite series. So back in 2021, we read through Invincible. And this past year, we read through Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. So this year, the series that we're going to read is Deadly Class. And we're going to start with Volume 1 later this month. So stay tuned. And uh, if you want to read along with us, uh, we hope you join us. Yeah. All right. Sounds good to me. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Peace. Hey, Albert. What up? What are your favorite J.M.D. Mateus comics?
Are, are you asking me this again, or are you playing a recording from earlier? I am asking you again <laughs> for this recording. Okay. Okay. Sorry, you just repeated it with the exact same tone and cadence that you did the first time around. I was t- taken aback. <laughs> um, hey, yeah. Albert? I, yes. What's your favorite J.M. DiMatteis comic? <laughs> Man, this is Groundhog's Day. Uh, I think The Life and Times of Savior 28 is one that I go back to a lot. It's it's probably the one that comes up to mind first and foremost when I think of a work of from him that I truly love. Um other than that, I would say his spectacular Spider-Man run. If I was going to put that as a whole, I would say that that's something that I have mm-hmm. great appreciation for as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have a clear-cut top 2? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you? I think my top two would probably be Brooklyn Dreams and Moonshadow. I don't know if I can really rank them, though, but those are probably my two favorites. Uh, But Dr. Fate is pretty high up there as well, as is Spectacular Mm Spider-Man. I have been thinking about Dr. Fate a lot recently, and that's something I haven't read in a while. Uh, you did we reread it for the podcast. <laughs> we could at some point I'm down. Uh, it's, it's not the longest series, so it's not that bad, but I do have the spectacular Spider-Man issues, so we could even cover that if you want. Do you have the whole thing? I don't have every single spectacular issue he ever wrote, but mm-hmm. I have the main run with Sal Buscema. Okay. Okay. I might be missing the issues that are crossovers with Maximum Carnage, but I don't really care about that. Yeah, I don't I don't have those either. So, not a problem there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we definitely do not have a shortage of uh Jim Diem comics to read. Heck, uh, or or to discuss for the podcast. So, I'm definitely down at some point. Uh, you know, we can uh totally work something out heck we we still even got scooby apocalypse and we really wanted to <laughs> True that dive into some of his more random works so good oh actually uh another spider-man comic did you ever read soul of the hunter that sort of sequel he did for craven's last hunt i do have that uh i have that and uh his craven's last hunt so i i do have them both yeah, Soul of the Hunter is another one that it's another one of his stories that I think touches on things like mortality and existentialism and thinking about death, being sad and stuff and uh finding love in in your wife. That's a uh, another kind of uh on brand for him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's a uh, he's good stuff, man. Mm-hmm. 